Merry almost Christmas. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glory appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all... Wait, did I read that way? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we were too foolish disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. One more? Oh. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Thank you, Leoni. Well, I want to welcome you all. I see uh, some new faces, some faces that have not been here for a while. We are glad that you are here with us. We are continuing in a series which we began uh, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And if, if you find that this, the theme of this series connects with where you are, I would encourage you to go back and you can listen to the other messages in this series from our website uh, this series has been one of the most beneficial series um, that I have preached for me. Uh, I've realized that uh, I needed to hear this series as much as anybody. So maybe, maybe uh, I don't know how, if it's affecting anybody, it's, but it's helping me. And so I'm grateful for that. Hopefully it's helping many of you as well. But you can go back and listen to other messages in the series if you, if you like. This is the last message in this series that we're doing. And the, the title of this series is I can see we need to work on this, don't we? The title of this series is Wait. And we are in a season, the season of Advent, uh, which is a series that trains us to wait. We live in a culture that does not like to wait. We live in a culture that does not train us 
to wait. We have used the example of Netflix, where it used to be that when you would watch a TV show and you'd be watching 24 and Jack Bauer would be in some situation where a bomb's about to blow up and it's at the end of the episode and he cuts the blue wire and then it rolls the credits, right? And then you have to wait a week to find out if he cut the right wire or if it... Hi, Rose. <laughs> so sweet. She's the support. The Delalas support me in so many ways. She could tell I needed it. Thank you, Rose. But you know what I'm talking about. You'd have to wait for the next week to find out what happens. Now you don't have to, right? You just download the entire season of whatever show it is that you're watching, and you don't have to wait to watch it anymore. We live in a culture that trains us to not have to wait. Even something as simple as email, something we now completely take for granted but was not around 20 years ago or however many years ago, it was there used to be a day when you would have to wait to get a letter from somebody. You would send a letter to someone and then you would have to wait for their reply and now it's instantaneous. We live in a culture that does not train us to wait. Credit cards do not train us to wait. Credit cards say, don't, no, don't wait to buy. Don't wait until you have the money. Why would you be so silly as to wait until you have the money to buy something? Don't wait. You can have it now. There are so many things in our culture that train us not to wait, train us to crave the immediacy. Now, there are, a few, there are still things in our culture that train us to wait, like I discovered just the other day. For example, when you go in to get your hair cut on the Saturday before Christmas... I won't make that mistake again. And I had to sit there. I walked in. It's completely full. And I had to wait. And it was like God was just laughing at me. Like, Kevin, you know this is what you've been preaching on week in and week out. But for the most part, our culture does not train us to wait. It trains us to crave the immediacy. And the season of Advent pushes back. The season of Advent pushes back against uh, the way in which our culture shapes us and says, no, says, says we're not going to stand for this and this uh, you know, craving the immediacy uh, aspect of our culture. We're going to learn to wait. And Advent trains us to do that. Some of the rhythms that we participate in train us to wait. Uh, just opening presents. We've talked about this, this whole tradition of buying presents and wrapping them and then waiting them for, for, to open them is entirely countercultural. But it trains us to wait. We've talked about how if you have a box of chocolates in your house, how long does it last? Right? You go to the store, you buy a box of chocolates, it lasts about 25 seconds maybe. But when you buy an advent calendar, right, a chocolate advent calendar, 25 pieces of chocolate, one each day trains you to wait. Advent is a season that trains us to wait. Of course, it's all grounded in what we do here is we relive the story of the people of Israel as they are waiting for the Savior to come, waiting for the Messiah to come. And so we sort of enter into that world. We relive that story with them in waiting for Christ to come. And then for us, it becomes a matter of us then waiting for him to return. That Advent isn't just about Christ's first coming, but it's also about reminding us that there will come a day when God will come and he will make things right. There will come a day when God will truly satisfy us. 
but we must wait. So Advent is this season that trains us to wait. It trains us to wait to be satisfied. That's what we talked about last week. At the heart of this message is this need for us to learn to wait to be satisfied. We don't like to wait to be satisfied. We want to be satisfied right now. But Advent trains us to wait. Now, the question we need to address as we end this series is this. What is it that we are to be doing while we wait? While we wait for Christ to come and and to make things new, what is it we are to do while we wait to be satisfied? We saw a few weeks ago when we looked at the book of James that we are not to be passive. While we wait, we are not to be passive. We're to do something. And in the book of James he uses an illustration, and he doesn't use the illustration of, say, someone waiting at a bus stop, right? When you wait at a bus stop, you're passive. You just sit there, and you, you wait. You look at your phone. You look at your watch, and you just wait. But that's not the illustration that James uses. He uses, as an analogy, that of a farmer, a farmer who waits for the rain to come, waits for the rain to come, And while he's waiting, if you know anything about farmers, farmers are not passive. Farmers farmers are active while they wait. Good. We'll just use this. So, again, what is the analogy that, that James uses to instruct us to wait? That of a farmer who does not wait passively. A farmer works and does something instead of just sitting there passively. So what we need to look at then today is is what is it that we do while we wait? As we sit in the season of waiting, what is it that we should do? And what this passage reveals to us is simply this. While we wait, we should do good things. Very simple, very straightforward. We should do good things. We shouldn't wait passively for God to satisfy us. We should do good things. This idea of doing good emerges several times in this passage. Uh, In verse 14 in chapter 2, it says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And then again in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1, remind the people to... Be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. And then again in verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have, been tr- who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. So this passage is just saturated with this idea that while we wait, we seek to do good things. And and here's the key difference. Most of what we do, our natural inclination is to desire to receive good things. But he's calling us to do good things. Stop worrying about receiving good things and do good things. Again, wait to be satisfied, but work to be sanctified. 
The word sanctified is a word that, that, that speaks to a person who is being changed and is turning into a person who does good things. And what Advent trains us to do is wait to be satisfied, work to be sanctified. Or another way of putting this is wait to be happy, don't wait to be holy. Pursue holiness rather than happiness. That's not how we operate, is it? Right? We pursue happiness rather than holiness. And what this is calling us to do is to pursue holiness rather than happiness. Now, I realize that as I say this, you're all like, I picked the wrong week to come to church. This sounds miserable, doesn't it? And, and I've, you know, I've told the story of, of a woman who, she was going through a book with her husband on marriage and the book was all about, the book was about how marriage, God created marriage to make you holy, not simply happy. Yes, happiness is there, but that marriage is given to us by God primarily as a means of making us holy, not necessarily happy. And, and this woman, as she's reading it with her husband, she breaks down in tears and just honestly says, I don't want to be holy. I just want to be happy. And you've got to respect the honesty, right? Because she says what we're all thinking and we're all feeling. I don't want to be holy. I just want to be happy. But listen, and, and this is, a, this is a, side, a side note. We looked at this last week and we could spend a lot of time on this. But what we, we saw last week, and I want to sort of reiterate again, is simply this. The pursuit of happiness doesn't lead to happiness. The pursuit of happiness does not lead to happiness. I think it's kind of interesting. Our country has in our founding documents, we are about pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, not even 50 years after those words were penned, Alexis de Tocqueville came from France, and he came through America, and he just sort of observed what America was like and what Americans were like and what their culture was like and what the people were like, and this is what he observed. There's this line that he wrote in his famous book, Democracy in America, where he says this about Americans. He says, as he observed them, he saw a strange melancholy amongst the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. A strange melancholy among them in the midst of abundance. He was saying they have more, they are more abundant, they're more prosperous than than virtually any of the other peoples that he had been around, and yet there is this strange melancholy because as they were pursuing happiness, it wasn't leading to happiness. And, of course, at the heart of what the gospel teaches us is that the paradox of the Christian faith is precisely that pursuing holiness leads to happiness, that obedience leads to abundance. And we see this uh, in the book of Galatians. I share this example all the time. In the book of Galatians Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of a person who has come to really know God and pursue that relationship with God. And he lists these characteristics of a person who has come to really know God. And what you discover is just this combination of both qualities of happiness and qualities of virtue. And they're just mixed in. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You're like, well, what is this? Is this a list of the good life or is this a list of the obedient life? And it's, yes, it's both. 
that the abundant life is found through seeking God, being obedient to God, that that is ultimately what can lead to happiness. But that, that's a side note. I give you that's free of charge to that. It's a little, little bonus here. So what Advent trains us to do then is to stop pursuing to receive good things and instead to devote ourselves to doing good things. That Rather than seeking satisfaction, seek sanctification. Seek to do what is good. Now, what does this look like? What does it look like to do good? What does it mean, do good things? And actually, the whole second half of this letter to Titus, uh, Paul has written to Titus. Paul planted uh, churches in the area, in the land of Crete, an island in the Mediterranean. And now Titus is his disciple, whom he's charged with helping to uh, take care of these churches that had been planted. And so he's writing to Titus, and he's, he's telling Titus how to, to deal with and to encourage the people in the churches there. And really the whole second half of the letter, of the letter talks about doing good things. And he uses all kinds of different examples. But we find here in verses 11 and 12 in chapter 3 something that really summarizes what it looks like to be sanctified. We find really these three words that I think really encapsulate in, in virtually its entirety what it means to be sanctified. Okay, verses 11 and 12. Again, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live, and here are three words, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Those three words, I would say, really encapsulate what it means to be sanctified and to do good things. And notice that he says, in this present age, he says, live these things. He's saying, now, this is what you do now. You wait, wait to be satisfied. That's for a future age. But now you pursue holiness. You pursue Sanctification, these, these three words, self-control, upright, and godliness. And I would actually say there's a, there's a progression to these words, uh, these, these qualities that actually come in almost the reverse order. In other words, uprightness and self-control flow out of godliness. Self-control and uprightness flow out of godliness. So let's stop for a moment here and let's look at godliness. What are we talking about what is Paul talking about when he talks about godliness? And I would say that this is what a godly person is. A godly person is a person who has cultivated a deep relationship with God. That's godliness, having cultivated a deep relationship with God. Now, notice how we're not defining this. Godliness is not to be defined in terms of moral excellency. It's to be defined in terms of a relationship with God. When we think godly, we think, oh, a godly person, that's one who does, does the right things, is morally excellent, is morally superb. That's putting the cart before the horse. That the Christian understanding of godliness is not moral excellency. That flows out of it. But that's not where it begins. The godly person is a person who cultivates 
a relationship with God. And we see in this passage, there is an already not yet nature to our relationship with God. We've been talking about this over and over again. This is something that Advent really drives home, is the already not yet nature of the kingdom of God. That in one sense, the kingdom of God is already here. But in another sense, it is not yet here. And we see that, really, it comes through very clearly again in these key verses. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. He's saying it's here. And he's talking about Christmas morning. He's talking about how in the person of Jesus, God has come. The kingdom of God has broken into this world. It is already here. You can have access to the presence of God. You can have access to the kingdom of God that's already here. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So in those two verses, we see the already Christ has already come. The kingdom of God is available, but it is not yet here. And so what that means is that our relationship with God is already here, but it's also not yet here. And that's why I think perhaps the best analogy for our relationship with God is the analogy analogy of engagement. For those of us who are married, if you've ever been, you remember being engaged and what that was like. Engagement is this weird season in a relationship where you're already with them, but not yet. Right? You're already with them, but you're not yet with them. You're already, you've committed, you know, you've proposed, she said yes, right? You've gotten to know each other, you're pursuing each other, you're spending all kinds of time with each other, and yet you're not fully together. I mean, I've, I've mentored married couples that during this season of engagement, they might not even live in the same town, they might live in separate states, and they're getting together on the weekends, they're, they're calling each other, and, and so they're already together, but they're not yet together. And in many respects, that's what our relationship with God is like. It's already here, but it's also not yet here. The godly person is a person who pursues that relationship with God. And here's what I think really emerges about our relationship with God in this passage. God wants to be in a relationship with you. I want you to hear that. God wants you to be, he wants to be in a relationship with you. That's what it means by the grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. God wants to be in a relationship with you. And here's what you need to understand about that. God is not waiting for you to get your act together before you can be in a relationship with God. God is not waiting for you to become upright and self-controlled before you can be in a relationship with him. That's what grace is about. He unpacks this further in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, 
but because of his mercy. Friends, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. God wants to be in a relationship with you. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, God wants to be in a relationship with you. And that's what it means to be godly. The godly person is a person who pursues and cultivates that relationship with God. Advent trains us to wait to be satisfied, but to work towards being sanctified. And the first part of sanctification is cultivating that relationship with God. And out of that flows the second dimension of sanctification, and that is being upright. Right? It talks about uprightness, which righteousness, another way of, of putting that, the upright person. Now, again, what does it mean to be upright? What is an upright person? And I would say once again that an upright person needs to be understood in relational terms. The godly person is a person who is in right relation with, with God. The person who is upright is the person who is in good relationships with other people. Uprightness is a term that is used to refer to our relationship with one another. Now, the word righteousness itself, of course, in the Bible is often used and primarily used to talk about our relationship with God. This word's a little bit different. It's of the same root. It's the same basic idea. But here it's talking about our relationship with one another. The upright person is a person who is in right relationship with one another. And Paul sort of unpacks this in a number of different ways in verses chapter 3, 1 through 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all people. That's uprightness is being in right relationship with others. And I think we can really sum it up this way. Here's, here's how I would put what it means to be an upright person. An upright person, listen to this, is concerned more with how they treat others than how others treat them. You can almost just sum it up that way. The upright person is a person who is more concerned with how they treat other people than with how other people treat them. Right? Because let's be honest. That's not how most of us are. Most of us, again, are focused on our own satisfaction. It gets back to that again. We're focused on our own satisfaction. We're not after sanctification. We're after satisfaction. And isn't it true that our satisfaction, for many of us, a big part of what affects whether or not we're satisfied or not is how other people treat us. Right? I mean, what gets you in a funk more than anything? That when somebody at work is, is rude to you or, or you're, somebody in your family does something that you, you know, against you, nothing gets you in a funk more than when somebody mistreats you. Nothing makes you feel less satisfied than when somebody mistreats you. And I would say that many of us find our deepest sense of satisfaction when people treat us well. Isn't that true? And so, because we're so grounded in seeking our own satisfaction, what this means is that most of us, we're much more concerned about people, how people treat us, than how we treat others. But the person who's upright, it's, it's the other way around. The person who is all about their satisfaction and is all about how others treat them, here's what tends to happen. 
we tend to really get upset when somebody is rude to us, but we barely notice when we're rude to others. We barely notice it. I mean, we notice it when they're rude to us. We hear it, we take it, we're, we're really bothered by it, but we barely even notice when we're rude to somebody else. We are hurt, deeply hurt, when somebody is angry at us. Like, how could they be like that? How could they do that? But then when we are the same way, we minimize it. We minimize uh, when we lash out at somebody else. We minimize the severity of it. We minimize the importance of what it was. But if somebody does that to us, we're devastated. Why? Because we're more concerned with how people treat us than with how, how we treat others. Isn't it true? We can be incredibly sensitive about how sensitive someone's being. So that's just being so sensitive. We're so sensitive about how sensitive someone's being, not realizing how sensitive we're being about them being about them being sensitive. We are skeptical when people make excuses for their actions. We're very skeptical. We're skeptical of the excuses people make for why they act a certain way. And then we are absolutely dumbfounded when people don't give us the benefit of the doubt. We're absolutely dumbfounded. When we give a reason that makes sense and they don't show us grace, we're completely dumbfounded. But when they give excuses, we're skeptical. Why is this? Because we're more concerned with how people treat us than how we treat others. But the upright person is a person who's more concerned with how they treat others than with how they are treated. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to embarrass a member of our congregation of thinking about who I think in our church perhaps embodies this kind of uprightness, perhaps better than anybody that I know. He's going to be embarrassed by that, but it's Jim LaBarbera. If you know Jim LaBarbera, you'll know that this is a man who I would say he is much more concerned with how he treats others than how he is treated. Let me put it this way. I have never in the eight years I've been here, nobody has ever come to me and complained about something that Jim LaBarbera said or did. Not once. Nobody has ever come to me and said, oh, Jim LaBarra, can you believe? Can you believe what he said to me? Not once. No one has ever said that to me. And I'll tell you, tell you what. Jim LaBarra has never come to me and said, Kevin, you can never believe what so-and-so said or did to me. Not once has he ever come to me and said that. The only time when he's come to me to talk about that sort of thing is there was one time, and I won't go into the details here, but Jim came to me and he was concerned. He's like, Pastor, I think I might have hurt somebody's feelings. I think I might have done something that really offended them. And I thought to myself, Jim, there is a better chance that the Jets or the Giants are going to win the Super Bowl this year <laughs> than that you genuinely mistreated somebody. Because he's more concerned about how he treats others than how they treat them. That's what uprightness is the righteous person, the upright person, listen to this. We own up to the slightest possibility that we might have done something wrong, even if 99% of the blame is on the other person. They're 99% off. What we notice is, yeah, but there's, yeah, I could have handled that better though. They were completely out of line, but boy, I could have handled that better. That's, that's what the upright person does the upright person get this? The upright person defends them, not themselves. 
If you're going to make excuses for how people act, make excuses for how other people act, not yourself. The upright person says, you know what? I think they, they had a bad day. They're just having a bad day. That's, that's, why, that's why they're doing it. They make excuses for them, not for themselves. But we, we're the other way. Isn't that true? I mean, most of us, we make all kinds of excuses for ourselves. No, the upright person defends others, not themselves. Look, friends, you will never meet a bitter, righteous person. It's impossible to be upright and bitter at the same time. Because bitterness is dwelling on, generally speaking, it's dwelling on how somebody else has treated you. And listen, in the very moment when you dwell on how somebody has mistreated you, in that moment, you are being unrighteous. Irrespective of what they did, if you dwell on how they mistreated you and how unrighteous they are in dwelling on that, you are acting in unrighteousness. Because the upright person doesn't, they they think about how they treat others, not how they are treated. Now, here's here's the big question, right? How on earth do we do this, right? (laughs) What enables a person to be more concerned with how they treat others than with how others treat them? And here's where we get to the heart of the Christian faith. We are more concerned with how we treat others than how they treat us. Because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is entirely concerned with how he loves us and how he treats us and not how we treat him. Jesus is the one who, he doesn't defend himself. When he stood before Pontius Pilate, he didn't say anything. He didn't give any excuses. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He made excuses for them. He made excuses for how they mistreated him. You see, We can defend others because Jesus has defended us. We don't have to defend ourselves. We have received grace. This is what enables us to show grace to others. Friends, I'm going to tell you there is so much freedom in that. Those times when I'm able to really get in that frame of mind of it's not about how people are treating me, but how I treat others. There is so much freedom in that. Bitterness and anger goes away. And and here's just, can I just say this? Isn't this just true? Being angry is miserable. This is why the way of Christ leads to life. Because when you're bitter and when you're angry, it's just, it's miserable. I wrote a song for my kids, which now is really for me. Because an important part of parenting is helping your kids learn how to cope with their anger. And then you realize, well, I know where they got it. Okay, I need to work on this myself, right? And here's a little song, and I think I've sung this before. It goes like this. It's no fun to be angry. It's no fun to be mad. It takes all my energy, and it makes me very sad. You guys sing that with me? (laughs) 
It's no fun to be angry. It's no fun to be mad. It takes all my energy and it makes me very sad. Friends, there is so much freedom in the gospel which says that because of what Christ has done for us, we can do the same. We aren't concerned with how people treat us, but in how we treat others. That's what it means to be upright. Friends, just listen. Stop thinking. Stop thinking about what your coworker did to you last week. Stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about what your spouse did or said the other night. Just stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about how others are treating you and focus entirely on how you treat others because that's where freedom comes from. And that's what it means to be upright. It flows out of godliness. Godliness leads to uprightness. These are two aspects of sanctification, right? And again, this all comes down to we're going to wait to be satisfied and we're going to work to be sanctified. We're going to work to be sanctified, pursue godliness, pursue our relationship with God. We're going to pursue loving others, treating them, not worrying about how they treat us. That's uprightness. And then finally, self-control. This is the third aspect of what it means to be holy. And actually, self-control, all three of these Dimensions of sanctification can be understood in relational terms. Godliness is about our relationship with God. Uprightness is about our relationship with one another. And self-control is about our relationship with ourselves. And self-control flows out of godliness and uprightness. And I'll just explain why, particularly out of uprightness. You see, when you stop caring about how others treat you, you're going to find that a lot of your self-control issues just take care of themselves. Because a lot of the times what we're having to control is the way we respond to the fact that somebody has mistreated us. But if we aren't thinking, if that's not what concerns us, if we're not concerned with how others treat us, we're concerned about how we treat them, self-control begins to take care of itself almost. It almost does, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite. And, and here's why. Now we've got to get... We've actually got to get really practical here for a minute. We've got to talk about why self-control is still important, even if you're an individual that really has begun to cultivate a mindset of, I care about how I treat others, not how they treat me. Here's why it's still important to understand self-control. Here's why. Because your body and your flesh is hardwired for satisfaction. No matter where your mind is, no matter if your mind is in the right place, your flesh, your body is hardwired for satisfaction. Your body is not interested in sanctification. It's not interested in being holy. It's not interested. It's interested in being satisfied. So even if you have the right frame of mind, you will find that your body does not always cooperate. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 when he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I do aren't the things that I want to do. He's saying, my mind, I see how to act. I see how to behave, but my body, my flesh doesn't, doesn't follow suit. So we have to talk about how the, the mind is ahead of the body. Your mind's in the right place, but your, your body isn't. So how do we exercise self-control? And here's what it is. We learn to trust God, not our feelings and our emotions. Self-control is grounded in the reality of trusting in God, not trusting your emotions 
and your passions. Listen, friends, you cannot trust your feelings and your emotions. As a general rule, you simply cannot trust them. Let's talk about anger for a moment. Anger is a feeling that really, it's, 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 I mean, it's there for a purpose, but you've got to be careful with it because in many respects, you can't trust your anger. There's something really interesting about what anger is just physiologically, right? When anger is triggered, it, it, these uh, chemicals get released in your brain. There's a number of things that happen, but chemicals get released in your brain, and that's kind of what gets you all riled up. Now, what's interesting about that trigger is that they've discovered that the mechanism that releases those chemicals is so efficient that it actually releases the chemicals before your brain has really had a chance to assess whether or not the threat is reasonable or not. So it, it, you get angry before you had a chance to process, is this really something that I should be angry about or not? The problem is that once those chemicals get in there, they start to cloud your judgment, and then they, they cloud how you reason, so now you're not even reasoning correctly. But it all starts because that happens before you've actually had a chance to reasonably process it. It's, it's not all that different. Fear is similar in this respect, right? You, you, ah, you freak out, you're scared, you jump because you felt something on your arm, and you're scared before you had a chance to look and mentally process that it was a ladybug and not a tarantula. Right? But you didn't know you just, it just happened, right? Anger is the same way. So it gets triggered before you've had a chance to process whether or not it's reasonable or not. When you get angry, you've got to real you can't trust your anger. You can't trust it. You can't trust your cravings. You can't trust your cravings for food. You can't trust your cravings for sex. You can't trust your cravings for success. Your body does not know what it's doing. You can't trust it. You can't trust the person who gives into their sexual desires and just fall. I mean, if you just follow wherever your sexual desires lead you, we all know this. I mean, that's, it's not going to go well. You can't trust that. And the person who struggles with, with food, struggles with alcohol, and these kinds of things, you come to realize you simply can't trust your cravings. You can't trust your passions. The thing is, it's, that's kind of alarming, isn't it? I think it's a little disconcerting. When you come to this realization, you can't trust your emotions, you can't trust your desires and your passions. And this is why we need the gospel. Because the heart of the gospel is that we have a God that we can trust. If it's up to you, if it's up to your feelings and your emotions, you're in trouble because you can't trust yourself. But the gospel says you can trust God. In the midst of anger, you can trust God that turning the other cheek really is the right thing to do, even though it doesn't make any sense to you emotionally. You can trust God when your sexual desires are leading you down a road. You can trust that what God says in Proverbs twenty two twenty three. He says, "All at once he followed her like an ox going into the slaughter, like a deer walking into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life." You can trust that, even when your passions and your desires are telling you something else. We trust God 
We don't trust our emotions. Let me tell you about uh, an old friend of mine. I haven't been in contact with him in a number of years. But in the first church where I served as a music minister, there was this, this man who, he was so serious about pursuing his relationship with God. You could tell that was primary to him. Above anything else, he wanted to know God. He wanted to pursue God. He wanted to trust in God. And then as I got to know him, he told me that he's actually schizophrenic. He struggles from schizophrenia, and he said, he said, Kevin, look, I can't trust my mind with just about anything. He said, I, I have to trust God. Friends, that's what self-control is about. It's, 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 it's realizing I can't trust myself. I'm going to trust in God instead of myself. These three areas of what it means to be holy. So let me just... Let me just kind of sum all of this up. I'm going to sum up this entire series. This series throughout Advent is a series which has been training us to wait. It's training us to wait to be satisfied. So instead of pursuing satisfaction, instead of pursuing pleasure, we pursue sanctification. We pursue holiness. Holiness, sanctification, there's three aspects to this godliness. I want to encourage you as we move into 2019, make pursuing a relationship with God your number one priority. As you go into 2019 and you start to make your New Year's resolutions, make that your number one resolution, that you are going to pursue a relationship with God. And if you're like, I have no idea how to do that, please come talk to me. I would love to, I would love to talk to you. This is something I know that for myself... I'm actually looking to to go away for a week and just spend an entire week with God. It's actually looking to do a retreat, which is an entire week of complete silence where I can just spend time with God. Because I realize I need that. I need to cultivate my relationship with God. And I encourage you in 2019, make that your number one priority. That's the first dimension of sanctification. Out of that flows uprightness. Make 2019 say, I don't even care if I get anything 2019. 2019 isn't about me receiving good things. 2019 is about me doing good things. And finally, 2019, may this be a year when I say, you know what? I'm not going to trust my passions. I'm not going to trust my emotions. I'm just going to trust God. I am going to work to be sanctified. I'm going to wait to be satisfied. Will you pray with me?